You're listening to Crossroads International Church Podcast. Welcome. We hope this podcast will bless you from wherever you're listening to it. For more information, go to our website at xrgs.nl. Now, let's get into the podcast. Good morning, beloved people. Also, those of you watching online. I love that way that John addresses the church in his first letter. We can't get enough of hearing that. Because indeed, that's what we are. We are dearly beloved of God. And through Him, we're dearly beloved of one another. Before I start today's sermon, let me introduce myself briefly. For those of you who don't know who it is you're looking at. My name's Anton Stokes. I've been coming to Crossroads for 20 years or more, since 2003. It's where I met my wife, Gertrude, and we were married here um, in this community in 2005. I'm a follower of Jesus, which I guess is no surprise, since I'm here preaching His gospel today. I'll be honest, my following has been sometimes walking, sometimes stumbling, sometimes even turning aside, as I think we all do. But always, these past 20 years, turning and running back to Him. I'm a theologian in the commonest sense of the word. I think a lot about God because I can't help it. In His wisdom and His grace, God's wired me to be a truth seeker. And I have an unquenchable hunger to know what kind of universe we live in and why we exist. I first came to faith in Jesus when I was a teenager. But when I went to university and I started thinking about whether God was actually real, I face the question that Jesus asks Peter. Do you want to go away as well? And I did indeed for a while. I needed to go away and ask that hard question. It took me 15 years of asking that question before I came back to affirm Peter's answer. Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He has not answered all my questions. I'm sure he has not answered all of yours. But the important ones and the ones that ensure me of that most important thing. That He is the Holy One of God. I came back to Christ when I was 39. And finally, at the age of 49, I returned to study as I'd long wanted to at seminary. To know more about this great true story. And it's out of that faith and that hope and that gracious love that I come to preach to you all today. 
and you can see for me standing in front of my own church community for the first time is a real joy. The text I've chosen for today is from Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 25 to 33. And the title and summary of today's message is Waiting on the Goodness of God. This text does indeed confront us with deep questions about God's goodness and how He works in the world He's created and which we have broken. But as with all, as with all of Scripture, if we dwell with it, to hear God's voice in it, and especially when it's difficult, we discover the truth and beauty and power of God that we need to hear. Even at first, it leads us where we would rather not go. So I've struggled to decide whether this text I should really preach today. But once I committed to myself to it, there was too little time to prepare anything else. And God assured me, this is what I must preach. When I first studied this text last year, Afghanistan was not yet in the control of the Taliban. Russia's invasion of Ukraine had not yet started. My stepmother was still alive and playing tennis every week. The daughter of some of my dearest friends was alive and the full bloom of her young adult life. Since then, all of that has changed. Precious people have died, and other precious people have been terrorized, maimed, brutalized. Homes, whole cities, and ways of life have been destroyed. Some of this grief and affliction is very close to me, but I know also to many of you, and in small ways, all of us, now or sometime. We have right now the privilege and responsibility to welcome particularly and embrace in our midst some who've taken refuge from the madness of the war in Ukraine. There are others among us who've had to watch dear ones suffer with illness, disease, and old age. Others who've been victims of crime or circumstance, and sometimes even consequences of our own foolish choices and our own sinful behaviors. The words we're about to read from Lamentations confront us with such circumstances, and they ask us this very hard question. How will we understand and respond to God in such times of grief and affliction? Let's read the text together. I'm reading from Lamentations, chapter 3, 25 to 33, and I'm reading particularly from the ESV version. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. 
Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from the heart or grieve the children of men. Father, these are hard words. As we look into them for what you have to tell us today, give me love to speak your word with truth. Give us all grace to hear, Jesus, what you have to say to us so that we follow you to the cross and beyond to the crown that you have for us. Because we pray this knowing that you equip us with the power of your spirit when we call on you in your name. Amen. What I want to do in this sermon is to take you through the text to understand its meaning in the time when it was written, its original context, and then have a look at how does that actually carry through to how we are to live it out today. It may be helpful for you to have the text in front of you as I go, because I'll follow the text quite closely. So if you've got a Bible app or your Bible with you, you might want to open it and just track with me. Again, that's Lamentations chapter 3, verses 25 to 33. The first thing we see is that the writer of Lamentations, in him, God has given us a trustworthy guide both to human grief and affliction and to God's goodness. Because the man who wrote this found himself in the midst of traumatic grief and affliction. The vividness of his writing in the whole of the book of Lamentations speaks of someone who's experienced the most terrible loss and painful circumstances. He's no ivory tower theologian, but a fellow sufferer and mourner. In the first two chapters, just to talk very briefly to give you a context, he describes his and cries out to God about the terrible destruction of Jerusalem. After the siege, when the Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem, it's a desolate, desecrated, starving city. He speaks of horrors like mothers eating their own dead babies and of the victors standing on the necks of the conquered and pressing their faces into the dust. And then the first half of chapter 3, he laments his own personal suffering in all of this. His response is very human, very like us. In his distress and despair, he comes very close to abandoning all hope. Chapter 3, verse 18, he says that very clearly. But he does not. He remains trustworthy about God. He reaffirms his certainty that God's sovereign authority and control are over everything that happens. 
He turns around from his despair, even in the midst of all his unanswered questions and his continuing circumstances of grief and affliction. In the passage immediately before the one we read today, he reaffirms God's identity. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, he says. In verses 22 to 24, it's a famous song that we sing. I think we often forget the context in which he was able to say these things. But he comes to a place where he urges himself and us to allow ourselves to be filled with insults. And even more disconcertingly, he also asserts that God causes his grief. Did you hear that when I read it? Look again at verse 32 if you have it in front of you. Somehow, he came to believe that these terrible, terrible and painful experiences were all within God's good will for his life even when he does not have all the answers. I think someone who's been through such things and come out in such an unexpected place has something to teach us. And the part I'm going to say now is something I added this morning because I want to admit to you all up front that God has not answered all my questions about why we must sometimes wait in affliction and suffering. I've been moved in preparing the truth of God's goodness and about the truth of God from the truth of God's goodness to the reality of our own suffering many times whilst I've been preparing this sermon. I woke again in the middle of the night last night, deeply troubled by the responsibility of speaking this to those of you who are right now in the midst of such circumstances. But as I talked with God about it last night, what does He have for us in these words? He reminded me that I have found comfort and truth exactly because they speak to the reality of our experience. Sometimes, inexplicably, we do live through such things. God does not answer all our whys about grief and affliction. But in the words and example of the writer of Lamentations, as we will see today, he guides us in how we can and must live through them. He gives us the how, and that is enough. The writer starts the passage by asserting God's goodness. In fact, God's very goodness Many of you will know the numerology, the numbers that they use. The number three talks of perfection. So he states it deliberately in a threefold statement at the beginning of our passage today. It's not so clear in our English. It's more clear in the original Hebrew. So I'll read it woodenly to you. Verse 25, good is God. Verse 26, good it is to wait quietly for his salvation. Verse 27, good it is to bear his yoke. And it's from this threefold statement of God's goodness that he instructs the proper response of his own soul and ours. 
So out of his grief and affliction, I want to pull those three things into three things we can learn that God has for us from the author of Lamentations. And the first thing is this. He did not allow the moment of his affliction to distract him from the goodness of God's steadfast love and compassion. Or to put it another way, he waited on God himself because God alone is good. Verse 25, good is God for those who wait and seek. He starts as we must by putting first things first, by turning back to the source of all goodness. Jesus says, there is no one but God, good but God alone, in Matthew 10. And the psalmist says, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good. So after all his struggling, the right of lamentations came to a place where he could say with confidence that God is both good and in control, even in our afflictions. That was the foundation of his hope of salvation and comfort in the moment when he needed it most. Because goodness starts and ends with the Creator who made all things. If God is not good in all things, we have no hope of eternal goodness. However hard we may find that to understand in our circumstances. So he remembers that God alone is the source of all goodness. He comes to a place of waiting where he sets his heart to seek. In verse 32, he reminds himself of God's steadfast love and compassion, his passion with us in our afflictions. And he seeks in God's word. He knew his Old Testament. He looked back to the time of Exodus. There he was reminded of the God who always waits for us because part of God's goodness is that he indeed first waits for us. He remembered the time when the Lord himself revealed his identity to Moses. You remember when Moses pleaded with God not to turn away from Israel in their rebellion at Mount Sinai? It's in Exodus 34. Moses asked the Lord to show him his true nature and to wait and be patient with Israel in their wickedness. And God responds with the description of who he is. And it's that identity that the writer of Lamentations reaffirms and quotes even in his grief. In verse 32, he says, He is a God abounding in compassion and steadfast love. You hear Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, as he said to Moses. So we too, in our afflictions, we look to another mountain, one outside Jerusalem, where God reveals himself to us again and waits for us. There Jesus waits arms wide, suffering for us and with us. 
There is the place we wait and seek. We seek the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. We turn our eyes to see the compassion with which he suffered for our sins, which is the ultimate demonstration and assurance of God's love and goodness and compassion, just as it's also the ultimate demonstration of waiting in grief and affliction. Our grief and affliction are places of waiting beyond our own control. In such circumstances, we wait because we must, not because we want to. And we're not good at waiting. We wish our circumstances to be changed, to be over, to be different. But we have no power to make it so. And so we wait in the knowledge that a very good God has been before us and is waiting with us. Because there's another reason that the writer of Lamentation tells us that we should wait. The second point that he makes is that he did not allow the moment of his affliction to distract him from the certainty of God's salvation. He waited on God's salvation because God will do good. Verse 26 says, Good it is that one be waiting, and that silently for salvation. Again, he knew his Bible stories. He knew his salvation history. And it gave him confidence to wait quietly for the God of our salvation, whether soon or late. His affliction was not over yet. But he knew God had been faithful to save his people out of Egypt and out of the wilderness. And he knew, as you read in the rest of his writing of Lamentations, that their present affliction was part of God's promised consequence for Israel's rebellion. But he also knew that God had promised to relent. Verse 37, that God would not cast them off forever. So eventually he came to a place where he waited quietly, which is to say without complaining, because he'd learned that complaining brings him nothing but discontent and that God is still good. As Jesus tells us, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and aren't our complaints often an expression of inward resentment and rejection of a very good God. So he writes for us in his very vulnerable and human journey of outrage, of pleading, of persuading, of contending. And finally, as we all must, acceptance that God is good even in our grief and affliction. And we are encouraged by him in our own journey, in our own imperfect struggles. Because we recognize that that's how we go through them too. And so, we too must wait expectantly and hope. Because we have good reason 
God has proven to be faithful and promised to be faithful. We have a crown that has already been won for us, one that we're not yet fit to wear, but which Christ has given us anyway. We consider Christ, who is God's salvation, even as he was fulfillment of Isaiah's promised suffering servant. So we wait quietly and resolutely, reminding ourselves that God does not desire us any grief, verse 32, but that he is able to work in all circumstances. And that beyond the cross is a crown. But thirdly, and maybe even more difficultly, the last thing that I want to bring from the writer of Lamentations is that he did not allow the moment of his affliction to distract him from the necessity of God's transformation. You could put it this way, he waited on God's formation because God is making us good. Verse 27, good it is for a man that he bear the yoke. He challenges us to accept the hard paradox that the goodness of God comes to us in a sin-damaged world by being formed in us when we wait and seek His salvation. See, God loves us too much to leave us as we are. And that sounds like a platitude, but it's not. If He doesn't make us good, we cannot enjoy and retain and multiply the goodness that He is willing and able to give to us and through us. We will just simply continue to break it with our sin. So that by the power of His Spirit, His good use of our evil circumstances is remaking us. Whether it's in affliction by the wickedness of others or the brokenness of creation or whether it's the affliction of our own sinful making. Hebrews 12, 6 says, the Lord disciplines the ones He loves. And it goes on to say that the result is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In all things, God's preparing us for eternity. And God's goodness works through brokenness to make wholeness. Romans 8.28 confirms all things work together for the good of those who love God, even our grief and our affliction. Whether it turns us back from our destructive course, as it did Israel, when they were taken into, into exile by the Babylonians, whether like the faithful servant in Lamentations, it brings us back to a place where we accept God's hard work in our lives, a place of mourning and lament and praying for those who suffer with us. Jesus says, learn from me. That same word comes back because my burden is easy and my yoke is light. 
But when we start, sometimes it's not that light. Our hearts make it heavy. But Jesus is making it light. That was a lot on a difficult topic. And the clock says I have two minutes and I'm going to try and wrap up, although I probably have five. And Pam is looking angrily at me. Well, not, because I know she's gracious. Cuts deep. But we need to bring it back to our own lives. We need to start by being honest with ourselves and with God about what it is that we are lamenting. I was talking to a dear friend of mine last week about his own experience of grief, and he gave me this definition. Grief is our experience of the gap between what we hope for and what we now have. I think affliction is similar, but the other way around. Affliction is our experience of the circumstances that are forced on us that we wished we did not have to endure. So what is your present grief? Or your past grief? Or your present affliction? That you need to bring to God and wait on His goodness in. Is it like it has been for us many years the children we were unable to have. Maybe the loneliness of rejection or a broken relationship. Or the absence of a friend or partner who you hoped for. Or the home and the people that you've been separated from. Or is it the fulfilling and encouragement, fulfillment and encouragement that never seems to come? Maybe it's the basic needs and even little luxuries that you just can't afford. Are you a business leader who's afflicted by the aggression and greed and anger of others in your work environment? Maybe you find the responsibility of your work seems to be beyond your endurance. Maybe it's smaller things. Complaining children, critical parents, cancelled holiday. The writer of Lamentations was able to move past his questions of why. Because God's goodness, he found the source of how in his circumstances. In your grieving and loss, can you wait with God, with those he's given to wait with you? We don't wait alone. Will you pray with those who mourn? Our grieving is the right response of goodness to evil. It's our good response to a world that is not yet as it should be. A longing for what it will be one day. And God's promise to relent. And Jesus has already won us a crown. Even if we wish it would come sooner. And God's also given us to one another to wait with one another. If it's not your own season for grief, will you wait faithfully with those who wait on God's goodness in their affliction? Pray with them if they ask you. 
Will you sit with them without judgment, without complaint, even as they may still be in a place of judgment and complaint and questioning? Will you wait in the ashes? In silence. When there's nothing to be said. But yet in our sense of hopelessness, will we look to the God of all history and the God of our own personal history? When I look back on my own journey to faith, 20 years ago I told Jesus, my doubts won't survive if you don't meet them every day. Here I am, 20 years later, a testimony to the goodness of God. But under your yoke of affliction, will you allow God to make you good? When you seek in the silence of your heart, because although Jesus has won us a crown, that cannot be taken away from us. We are not yet fit for that crown. And He longs to make us so. Soon or late, He will. So we wait expectantly in the power of the Spirit that He has promised us. Because such waiting is part of God's good purpose and narrow way to the joy of His kingdom, the kingdom of a very good God. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you have a wonderful week. See you next time.